Turn with me to John chapter 20. Our text this afternoon will overlap some of the verses that we looked at last week. But we will focus in on the end of this passage since we did cover most of the beginning of this passage last week. We'll look at 11 through 18 in John chapter 20. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. O oh, Father, glorious God in heaven, who could speak your word, O oh Lord, except that you move on us by the Holy Spirit. O oh Lord, work through my mouth to speak clearly and plainly and accurately your word today. And O oh Lord, would you open deaf ears and save sinners and encourage your people today. We pray these things for the glory of our Lord Jesus in his name. Amen. Mary was at Christ's tomb weeping and this is the first evidence that she loved Christ. She wept at his absence. Can I say that I love my wife and then be separated from her for a length of time and not miss her and not feel that deep longing for her presence? And if it's true with our human relationships, how much more it is with our relationship with the Lord? Can I say that I love Christ and then sin and be separated from Him and not feel that yearning for fresh fellowship with Christ? I've, met, I've read many a list of Puritans and Reformers and other great men through history who have made lists of evidences that we are truly born again, which I think are good lists to make ourselves familiar with. But at the top of many of the lists is this one, and I so heartily agree that we love Christ, right? It's the first evidence that we're truly born again, is that we love Christ. And I think the best way to test that, one man says, the best way to test it is how 
we feel in Christ's absence. And we see something of that here with Mary and her love for the Lord. And when the Lord was absent, she wept. Love for the Savior is certainly the first evidence that we are one of His and one of the strongest proofs of that love is how we feel when we are estranged from Christ or separated from Him. In one sense, the Christian can never be separated from Christ. But in our sanctification, we have our ups and downs and there are times when we sin or for other purposes in God's plan, we feel distant from Christ or we don't sense His sweet and close presence and we feel discomforted and even scared and at times possibly even terrified because we want to be in fellowship with our Savior, the one whom we love. And if that is strange to you, if what I just said is strange to you and you say, I don't even know what he's talking about, I fear for the salvation of your soul. Oh, sweet fellowship with Christ is at the center of Christianity. It is the very heart of the believer to be in close fellowship with Christ. And not just in a academic way, but in a way where we, we, we really know his love. We really know his tenderness. And when that is, we are separated from it, we feel it. Last week we considered the fact that months or a couple of years before the Lord's death and resurrection, the Lord Jesus in Luke 8 cast seven devils out of Mary Magdalene. She was in a deplorable condition when Christ found her, cast out the devils, put her in her right mind and saved her. What grace that the Lord saves these types of people, those who are in the worst possible condition. We can only imagine the oppression and misery and the wickedness that a woman possessed with seven devils experiences. And then Jesus healed her and saved her. What incredible joy and thankfulness that cannot be put into words. Mary must have felt when Christ saved her. And now she's separated from him. And this story is recorded in Scripture as a great lesson for us. Often we don't feel that separation anxiety because we don't see ourselves in Mary's position. Right? That's, that, was the, that was the crux of the sermon last week. That Christ found us and saved us when we were 100% unsavable. Whatever condition we were in before the Lord saved us, we were like Mary Magdalene before we got saved. We were possessed with everything but Christ. And we were going our own way with no help of turning ourselves around. Can a demon-possessed person cast the devils out of themselves? Therefore, the devils will remain unless the Lord intervenes. And it's a hopeless situation until Christ comes in. Some might say, Oh, that I was never possessed with seven demons. Well, turn with me to Matthew 
chapter 12. If you say you've never been possessed with seven demons, and in a literal sense, we haven't been, but in a metaphorical sense, we have. And that's what Christ is speaking of here in Matthew 12. He has something to say to us in Matthew 12 about this. In Matthew 12, 43 through 45, there we read these parabolic words of Christ. He said, when the clean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so, it it be also unto this wicked generation. The Lord Jesus spoke this parable to the Pharisees or to the religious people. Do you see there are people who clean themselves up and they stop doing all the bad things they used to do. Or maybe they just have been religious their whole lives like these Pharisees. And then they return home and everything seems neat and clean. That's what Christ said, it was clean and garnished. Everything's neat and clean. Except now, seven other spirits, more wicked, enter in, Christ said. He's speaking to the religious people. Jesus is making a reference to seven devils of false religion. Or the deception of false religion. Or the idea that we are not as bad as those people is far worse than the first state of the man. But by his grace, if you know Christ, we were found in this condition and the Lord intervened in our lives and put us in our right mind and saved us. It, it is grace upon grace upon grace. And now we, like Mary, when, when the Lord feels far away or he is absent, we are brought to sorrow or even weeping. And, and God caused Mary to see the angels. In the text, she stoops down, she looks into the grave and she sees two angels where Christ was sitting. But that won't work. Or the angels cannot comfort her or supplement her need for Christ. And so it is with us. Nothing can supplement or fill in for or replace our need for Christ. Or if someone has extraordinary gifts like gifts of healing or they claim to speak with tongues or gifts of great knowledge, that won't satisfy. Or if we gain great riches and see much success in this world, then that won't work either. We want Christ. And if we see heavenly angels and they speak to us, neither will they satisfy. We need Christ. We want our Savior. We want our Savior. Do you see this is the problem with the prosperity gospel? And many charismatics who hold to the fact that Christ is going to make you wealthy and rich and give you many gifts. My question is to those people, why are you not satisfied with Christ? 
Why are you not satisfied with Christ? The Lord is my shepherd. I am in need of nothing. He is our fulfillment. We want our Savior. We want the one who has set us free from seven devils. And we can't live without him. This was the attitude of Mary. And may it be ours. But thank God it seems to me that the angels pointed Mary to Christ even as the angels in Luke 2 pointed the shepherds to Jesus Christ at his birth. In addition, I think that we should take notice that the Lord Jesus Christ has no less compassion than he did in his humiliation. In other words, the Lord has no less compassion in his exaltation than he does in his, in his humiliation. Right? Some might have the impression that after Christ rose from the dead and was in his glorified state that he didn't have the same amount of compassion as he did before he was crucified. And nothing can be further from the truth. These are the first words that the Lord Jesus spoke after his resurrection and he calls Mary by name. He calls the apostles my brethren. Such an endearing term, the ones who had just forsaken him. He calls my brethren. We see the great compassion of Christ after his resurrection. And he calls Mary by her name to awaken her to his presence. When it seemed that she would have just turned away, not even recognizing the Lord after she first looked at him and spoke, he spoke to her. The Lord, as I said, calls his apostles brethren. What grace! Mary was weeping at Christ's empty tomb. She was blind to Christ's presence when the Lord was standing right in front of her. Yet the Lord spoke four words of comfort that quickened her soul. And she went back to the disciples and told them that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these great things unto her. And I don't think when she went back to the apostles and the other disciples and told them what Christ said to her, I don't think she said it in a monotone voice. But I'm sure that she was gasping for air because she was so excited. And she told them that she saw Jesus and he spoke to her. No doubt that she was ecstatic or so overwhelmed that she may have appeared to have lost her mind. And maybe that was one reason the apostles didn't believe her, as Luke records, that when she and the other women came back, they didn't believe. But what I want you to see today is I see four words of comfort and revelation from Christ to the weeping saint. Four words of comfort to the weeping saint. Dear saint, have you felt the stress and depression of the Lord's absence? Have you wept because the Lord seems so distant? Listen to these four words of comfort that Jesus Christ has for the weeping saint. And may the Holy Spirit give us the joy that Mary must have had when she returned to the apostles with this news. And may we bring this news to our brethren. Isn't that what the Lord told her? Go and tell thy, my brethren about these things. May we be overwhelmed and ecstatic as Mary was. 
and go and tell our brethren these four words of comfort from Christ for the weeping saint. Let's look first at the first comforting words of Christ. In verse 15, the Lord asked Mary these questions. He said, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? And I believe he's pointing her to the risen Christ. It's the first words of comfort. Comfort. Look to the risen Christ. In verse 15, the angel asked Mary why she was weeping. But then the Lord added the second question. And the second question was the answer to the first. Why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Or if you are seeking Jesus Christ, and it is he who is talking to you, then why are you weeping? Or you should not be weeping, right? This is a soft rebuke, and what blessed words they are. Oh, how blessed and compassionate and needful are the rebuke of the Lord, the rebukes of the Lord for his people. If you're a saint, you know what I'm talking about. The Lord could have spoken to Mary in a way that would have driven her away, but instead he gives her a compassionate reproof. Or by asking the second question, he is telling Mary to think about who it is that she is seeking and that no one who is seeking Jesus and is in his presence as she was should be weeping. And as I thought about this, I thought about the great irony Oh, the irony of all ironies, that the unconverted or those who are not seeking Jesus rejoice when they should be weeping, and the saints weep when they should be rejoicing. The heathens say, I would rather laugh with the sinners than to cry with the saints. What a sad statement and declaration of their condemnation if they don't repent. Better to weep now and rejoice eternally than to laugh now and weep for eternity. The Holy Spirit wrote this through James. If you look in James chapter 4, near the end of your Bible there in James, he says in 4, 9 through 10, Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. The psalmist wrote, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now that I am afflicted, I kept thy word. Or weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. How easy it is just to try to run to the joy without going through the mourning? Or, or, or Mary should have been weeping the night before when Christ was still dead, but now the Lord had risen. It was good that Mary was weeping in the Lord's absence. It, is, it was good that her soul was afflicted when her Savior was nowhere to be found. This showed her great love for him, but, but now the risen Lord is standing right in front of her, and she is weeping, and her weeping should cease, as it would 
in just a minute. But at that moment, she did not recognize Christ, but she thought him to be the gardener. Some think that she didn't recognize the Lord because her eyes were glazed over because of her tears. That may be true to some extent, but I tend not to believe that that's why she didn't recognize the Lord. Others think that Jesus was unrecognizable in his risen body. But that theory doesn't seem to be biblically consistent because the Bible teaches the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or the body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. But in his glorified state. But I would think that he would have been recognizable as, as the saints will be recognizable in our glorified bodies. Certainly, the Lord wasn't just a spirit or, or phantom that was raised from the dead, as some damningly believe. But as we match Scripture with Scripture, right? Where are we going to find the answer to this problem? Where are we going to find it? We match Scripture with Scripture. We find there are two other instances when our Lord appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, and they should have recognized him and did not. Actually, a third one just came into my mind. When the Lord appeared to them in Luke's gospel, they, they thought he was a spirit, and, and, and he took something to eat to show them that he was really a man. But there was another time in John 21, when the apostles were fishing, and the Lord was on the shore, and we could think that, that they did not recognize him because he was so far away, but then the Lord spoke to them, and they still didn't recognize him. But when they cast the net on the other side of the ship, you'll probably remember, as Christ instructed them to do, and they caught a great number of fish, it was then that they recognized that it was the Lord. Or in Luke 24, if you wanted to look in Luke 24, we have the most explicit example of this, the plainest example of these two men on the road to Emmaus who knew Christ in his earthly ministry but did not know him in his physical appearance after his resurrection. Look in Luke 24, 15 through 16, and it tells us exactly why they didn't. The other places were not told exactly why the apostles didn't recognize him when he was on the shore, why Mary didn't recognize him here, but here we are told why they didn't recognize him. And look, look at verses 15 and 16. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Look at 16. But their eyes were holden. The word means stopped. Their eyes were holden that they should not know him. Their eyes were being stopped from seeing Christ. Who was stopping their eyes? Who was limiting their vision? Well, we must assume that, that it was the power of God because they should have known that it was him. And they especially should have known when they heard his voice. Often people can be more recognized by the sound of their voice, right, than by their appearance. We have senses or, or we can see and hear, but our senses are under the control of God's sovereign power. 
Now, some people think that Jesus changed his appearance here on the road to Emmaus, but I think because of what it says here, that their eyes were holding. Their eyes were stopped from seeing him. And we have senses, right? And we can see and hear, but our senses are under the control of God's sovereign power. That God not only chooses who will believe, but God chooses when we will believe, according to his divine purposes. Or God has arranged the lives of those who are in such a way Yet he has arranged our lives in a certain way that at a certain hour and minute we must believe or we cannot not believe. While just minutes or seconds earlier, the risen Savior was unrecognizable. Isn't that Mary's problem? She's un- Christ is unrecognizable. Her eyes are being stopped. One second she doesn't believe, the next second Christ chooses, and she does believe. It's Matthew eleven twenty seven. It's Matthew eleven in verse number twenty seven, where the Lord said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Who's the only one that knows the Father? The Son. And the only ones of us that know the Father are those who the Son has chosen to reveal him. And he chooses the the where and the when. This first, the first comforting words that Christ has for the weeping saint is to ask why are you weeping? Or who are you looking for? Or look to the risen Christ. Or let your tears be turned into joy. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. The grave has been conquered. And those who believe on Jesus Christ can be assured that we will rise forever in new bodies with him. Praise his holy name. But in our second comforting word of Christ to the weeping saint in verse 16, I would say, remember when Christ called your name. Or I pray he's calling your name as I speak. The Lord Jesus just spoke seven words to Mary in verse 15, and she did not recognize him. But now he says just one word, her name, and everything changed. We talked about this last week at length, so I won't spend much time with it. And I'll I'll look at at it from a little different angle today. But, But how can we miss the words in John 10, 3? When, he, when the Lord said to him, the porter openeth, and the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. He calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. Or in John ten twenty seven, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. We have many examples of this in scripture. The Lord called Abraham by name in Genesis 22. 
The Lord called Moses by name from the burning bush in Exodus 3. The Lord called Samuel by name when he was just a small boy in 1 Samuel 3. And when Paul got converted and Paul's testimony is the Christian testimony, it's the prototype testimony, it's the testimony of how all of us got saved, if you look at it in the details, which I won't get into today, but when Paul was converted in Acts 9, how was he converted? The Lord called his name, Saul, Saul, as he was referred to back then. The sheep know the voice of their master or shepherd. It might be easier for us to relate this to, uh, could I say, our dogs, right? The other night I was walking towards the backyard and there's a fence there and our dog is in the backyard and the dog can't see who it is, but it sees somebody approaching and, and it's barking at me like it, our dog is barking at me like it wants to attack me, like viciously. And then I say its name. And what happens? Suddenly it's quiet and submiss in a submissive position. Or just a second ago it was in a, an attack position. I simply said her name and she was quiet and calm. She, th th they know my voice. The dog knows my voice. The sheep, his sheep know the master's voice and we respond to it. But praise his holy name. But the Lord knowing our name also means, it means that he knows us intimately or, or he knows our temperament and he knows our weaknesses and strengths and he calls us. He calls us at a time and place when we, by his grace, respond. Some are called in the deepest time of despair. Others are called when everything is going great. Others are called at all points in between. The Lord knows exactly when to call his people. And he has arranged the circumstances for us to follow him when he does call. Do you see that? It's, it's not just necessarily a zap from heaven and we're saved. And certainly, I don't mean to be irreverent in saying it that way, but part of that's true, right? We hear the voice of Christ in the scripture and we're drawn to it. But God is not unable to use all of the circumstances and all of the people and all of the words and thoughts and emotions of us and everyone connected to us. He uses all of that and brings it all together so that at a certain point in time and a certain place, God's people believe and we can't not believe. He's orchestrating it. It's what he means that he calls our name. He intimately loves his people. In Psalm 139, if you wanted to turn there, what a precious passage it is. I pray you have it put to heart. What a great psalm speaking of the intimacy of the Lord with his people and the infinite wisdom of God. That God's wisdom is just not infinite in a way that he has all the information, and certainly he does. But it's infinite in the sense that he cares for his people. In Psalm 139, we find these most precious words. And I believe there is a connection in these words between Christ and his people when he calls us. In Psalm 139, 2, Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. 
Thou compass my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. The Lord knows every part of my inner being, every thought, emotion, and motive. And He knows every word I have ever spoken and every act I have ever committed. And He knows every consequence and every contingency of everything that has ever been done. Can you imagine that? That God not only knows every word, thought, motive, and action of every person that has ever lived, and He knows it all of once, he knows every contingency. He knows every possibility. In, in, I mean, how can you even understand that? How can you even begin to understand the mind of God and his infinite wisdom? And that he knows all of that and he knows every contingency that if this would have happened, that these 10 zillion things would have happened in reaction to that, but instead, then every one of those would have had contingencies off of that. And it's all in the mind of God. He knows everything that could have happened, everything that did happen, everything that you have thought, everything you, where you have been, and every motive that we have and everyone on earth. And oh, He cares for us. A God like that cares for us. And he's called our name or he's arranged this plan that his people would be saved. And he has set everything in place that we would be saved for the glory of his name. Praise his holy name. The Lord calls his sheep by name and the stranger they will not follow, we are told in John 10, 5. Or when the elect hear the true gospel, we are drawn to it. And a false gospel repels Christ's sheep. Or we won't follow a deceiver, even though the deceivers are much more popular and much more attractive to our flesh. When the Lord Jesus spoke Mary's name, everything changed. All the tears were gone. And I'm sure that she had a joy that could not be contained. Think about someone who you dearly love getting into an accident, God forbid, and the doctor says that they will surely die within the next day. And then suddenly they recover back to full strength. We would be incredibly happy. Well, take that feeling and multiply it 10,000 times and we might be able to understand Mary's joy when, when Christ was alive, when she saw him alive. I think that's part of the reason the Lord told Mary not to touch her. Which brings us to our third heading in verse number 17. Consider Christ's everlasting ministry. You see it in verse 17 where Christ told Mary, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. There are many differing opinions on what the Lord meant here when he told Mary to touch me not for I am not yet ascended to my father. And, and there are three or four of them that are very plausible or can all be true biblically. 
I, but I believe that, that the Lord told her to touch him not, not because there was something mystically different about his body that forbade her to touch him. Well, we know that's not true for just in a few minutes or or a short time later, Matthew recorded that, that there was a whole group of women that fell at Christ's feet and were touching his feet, and, and they did touch him and worshipped him. I believe that the Lord told her not to touch him because she was not to relate to Christ as she did before he was crucified. Or I agree with those who believe that the Lord told her this because he wanted her to know that he would not remain on earth or his ministry was not that he would continue on earth in his physical body with the saints as he formerly did, but that he had to ascend to his father. And this ministry would be much more profitable to the saints than if Christ stayed on earth or the Lord had to ascend to complete his mission. Do you see that? The ascension completes Christ's mission or, or he had to return to heaven. And this is much more profitable for the saints. That doesn't sound right, does it? Like Christ remaining on earth in his glorified form as a glorified man. Certainly that would be more profitable than him ascending, right? But no, no, Christ has already clearly taught them for two main reasons. I think there's a couple other ones too, but for two main reasons, it was more profitable for him to ascend. One, one reason the Lord Jesus would not send the Holy Spirit in the way that he did in Acts 2 until after he ascended. I believe we are more blessed than Thomas at the moment he believed on Christ, and we'll get more into that next week, Lord willing. You remember that after the Lord appeared to Thomas, well, he appeared to the 11 and then they didn't believe, the 10, I should say, and didn't believe, they believed and then Thomas wasn't there and then he appeared to Thomas a week later and Thomas did believe. And Thomas touched Christ's hands and his side. The Lord told him, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. Does that mean that we are better than Thomas because we have believed and have not physically seen Christ? The Lord doesn't say that we are better, but that we are blessed. And that blessing is that we have been quickened or made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. It is better that we don't see with our physical eyes it is better that we don't see with our physical eyes. The Lord is telling Mary, don't touch me. There's something that's changed. And I must ascend to my Father for you to really understand this change. It is, it, it is better that we be quickened by the Spirit. People say, show me and I will believe. And I say, that you could live with Jesus Christ for 50 years and not believe. And you won't believe until God opens your spiritual eyes. At least five times 
in the upper room discourse and in those precious last moments that Christ spent with his apostles, the Lord told them that he would send the Holy Spirit, but only on one condition. Do you remember? Look in, look in 16, 7 of John, and he says it exactly. You don't have to guess. He says it exactly what the condition is. What is the condition of Christ sending the Holy Spirit? John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient or better for me, for, for you, that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. He says it emphatically. He puts it in the negative. You know why things are put in the negative in the Bible oftentimes. It drives it home, right? He says the Comforter will not come to you is what he's saying. He's saying it emphatically. The, whole, the comforter will not come to you unless I depart, unless I go. Oh, what a blessing beyond words that God dwells in men or God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in us who are born again or we have been made spiritually alive and now we are the temple of God. There's no more need for the Holy of Holies or for the temple where God dwells because God dwells in his people. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ in John 15, 26. When the Spirit comes, Jesus said, he'll testify of me. It was the Holy Spirit who imparted to us the gifts of repentance and faith unto salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that comforts the people of God. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that leads us into all truth in the Scripture. It is the indwelling Holy Spirit in Romans 5, 5 that sheds the love of Christ abroad in our hearts or fills our hearts with the love of Christ and causes us to live in obedience to Him. Jesus Christ dwells in his people through the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Christ will never, no, never leave us or forsake us. Do you see that salvation is spiritual life in Christ by the Holy Spirit? And without the Holy Spirit, we would all be spiritually dead. It is the Spirit that gives life. Do you have this Holy Spirit life? Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you? For every Christian does and must have the Holy Spirit. And what a precious gift it is given to those because Christ ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. But secondly, the, the, the Lord's ascension also represents his seated position at the right hand of the Father where Jesus Christ, as the second person of the Trinity, ever lives to make intercession for the saints, or the Lord forever prays for his people, and he forever pleads our case, and this secures the people of God so that we can never be lost. Oh, you read the Lord's Prayer in John 17 and you'll see it repeated that the Lord sits at the right hand of the Father in His exalted position and every one of His prayers will be answered. And in John 17 we see He is praying that we will be kept unto the end. Therefore, we will be kept to the end because of Christ's ascension 
He had to ascend. It was better for him to ascend than to stay on earth because now we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. And we, we have this king, this, this advocate in heaven, our Lord Jesus, who ever intercedes for his people. What wonderful words of comfort embedded in the words of Christ to Mary. In verse 15, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? Or to the risen Christ, or look to the risen Christ, he was telling her. Why are you weeping when I'm risen? Or why are you weeping when the living Christ is with you? And the Lord could say this to Mary because she was in his physical presence. But the Lord can say it to us because he dwells in his people and with his people by the Holy Spirit. And we know the risen Christ because he's been revealed through the Holy Spirit. And in verse 16, remember when Christ called your name, what comforting words. This shows the Lord did not call us like the lady at the grocery store calling us when our number was up because we're next in line. He didn't call us that way. But the Lord called us because he personally and lovingly knows us. Or he knows every hair on our head and every breath that we take. And he arranged the exact moment we got saved. Whether we were 90 or whether we were 5 years old. When he called our name. It was his grace. The third and 17 considered Christ's everlasting ministry. Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. He points to his ascension. The Lord Jesus rose from the dead so that we could have everlasting life in him. He spoke our name, and there was power and love in his voice. And so we heard and we followed him. And now the Lord ever lives to make intercession for his people where he ever stands as our eternal savior. And with all that, with all that, what does the Lord tell us to do? What does he tell us to do with that? What does he tell, what does he tell Mary to do in the second part of verse 17? He says, go and tell my brethren. Go and tell your brethren these things that Christ has spoken. How gracious that the Lord called his disciples my brethren. These were the same ones who just forsook him at his death. And now the Lord calls us his brothers and sisters. Not because we are better than anyone else, but because it has been revealed to us that we are worse. Or we would have forsaken the Lord in his greatest hour of need if we were left to ourselves. But the Lord doesn't hold grudges because we have been washed in his blood and made spiritually alive and brought into this new family whereby we have this Trinitarian fellowship or we have been brought into fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's Hebrews 10. Look there for the last passage of the afternoon in Hebrews 10. We're admonished to bring this news to our brothers and the brothers of Christ, those who might still be unsaved, who would be the elect. Bring, it, bring this news to the brothers, but I think it predominantly refers to those in the church in 
Hebrews 10, 22 through 25, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. We don't provoke our brothers and sisters, sometimes we do in a bad way, but we don't provoke our brothers and sisters in Christ unto good works by seeing who can do the most activity in the church, but we do it by speaking to them of what Christ has spoken to us. Or he tells us to go and tell your brethren that Christ is risen. Go and tell your brethren that Christ has called my name or that he has lovingly beckoned me unto himself. And we tell them that Christ has ascended and sent the Holy Spirit and he ever lives to secure his people or he is the faithful one. And if Christ has ascended, what does that mean? If Christ has ascended, he will descend or he will come back again. The Lord made that promise. If you go back to John, in John 14, in verse 3. You remember when the Lord told him he's going to his father? I must go to my father, and they're sad. And in verse 3, he says, And I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again. I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Oh, the last promise of Jesus in the Bible, which is the second to the last verse in the Bible in Revelation 22, 20. What did Jesus promise? Surely I come quickly. Surely I come quickly. The Lord Jesus rose from the dead. He called our name. He sent the Holy Spirit and ever intercedes for us. And now he will soon return. Brothers and sisters, we have much to rejoice over and much to tell one another. Right? Speak of these things. Go to your brethren. Let us be obedient to the words of Christ. Go to my brethren, Christ said, and speak these great and marvelous things that Christ has spoken. Don't let our conversation be bogged down with everything else but these things, but let us be obedient to our Lord and go and tell your brethren. It will comfort and strengthen them as well it will comfort and strengthen the one who is speaking it. Will it not? Go and tell your brethren of these great and wonderful things that Christ has done for us. What a precious Savior he is. May we, like Mary, be obedient to the Lord and, and speaking to others that we have seen the risen Christ Right? We have seen the risen Christ. We've seen him. And we've seen him in a more profound way than Thomas seen him. Can you believe that? If you're unconverted, that sounds strange to you. You think, 
What, what is this guy talking about? Did he see some kind of aberration of Christ? Or he seen some kind of ghost? Like, what's he talking about? We have a more sure profession than even those who physically saw Christ. It's true because why? We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I think that's why those who didn't recognize Christ when they should have in his post-resurrection appearances, it's an example to us, right? That God will open their eyes. God had to open their eyes for them to see on the road to Emmaus. Praise his holy name. And we have a more sure profession because the Spirit of God through the scripture has opened our eyes and we have seen the risen Christ. We testify of him. He has spoken our name when we were in our unbelieving state and he did not just speak it in a random way or in a cold way, but he spoke it endearingly, right? We were drawn by his loving kindness. It's like when you might be in an argument or something with a, with a close friend or a close relative, and then suddenly it gets quiet, and, and it's really fierce at a certain point. I hope that doesn't happen, but it, I'm sure it does on occasion. And then your dear friend who you're in this combat with will stop and just say your name. You say, Mark, what are we doing? I'm your friend. It's almost like how Christ spoke to Mary. He said, Mary. And she suddenly saw, it's Christ. It's me, he said to her in essence. Mary. And he said it with a tone of, of love and embrace that it's me. It's Christ. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's by his loving kindness, it's with his cords of love we're drawn to Christ and we hear him speak our name. And now he has ascended by his grace and sent his Holy Spirit and we know these things to be sure and we go and we tell our brethren. We tell Christ's brethren and we go skipping, telling them, skipping home that we have seen the risen Lord. We went to the tomb weeping we went to the tomb sorrowful, for we sensed the absence of Christ. We go home skipping with joy, because Christ has called our name, and we have the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we have seen the risen Christ. Have you seen the risen Christ? This is the question. It's the premier question of being a Christian. It's the first question of being a, a Christian. Have you seen the risen Christ? It's how they were identified in the first century. They had this little saying that would identify them. They would say, Christ is risen. And if the other person was a Christian, they would respond by saying, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And many of them in that first days of the coming of the Spirit were actually eyewitnesses of Christ. But then as the Holy Spirit came and, and the word spread, there were many who were not physical eyewitnesses, but they were Holy Spirit eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, as are we who are born again. 
we have seen the risen Christ and when we see him, oh, everything changes. All of our sorrow is turned into joy. But isn't it true, dear Christian, that we can go back to sorrow? We can sin and be separated from the presence of Christ. Or we just fall out of fellowship because we do what the scripture says. We, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And we feel like we're back at the point of again, like Mary, weeping at Christ's absence. And that's good. It's a good sign. We should weep at the Christ's absence. We should weep at his absence. We should feel the pain, at least in some degree. And yet, dear ones, let us remember these three words, these four words of Christ. We have seen the risen Christ. He has called our name. He has sent the Holy Spirit. He is seated at the right hand of God, ever interceding for us. And when we go and we are filled with this joy, let us proclaim it to our brethren. Amen. Let us bow our hearts in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for these glorious truths in your word. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise your holy name. Thank you for your grace and how you saved sinners, oh God. May each here have seen the risen Christ. Oh, through the Holy Spirit, we have this inner understanding and depth of Christ and his glory. We praise your holy name, O oh Lord. It's changed everything. We praise your name. It's changed all of history. Lord Jesus, your resurrection has changed all of history in every way. May it change our lives, Lord. May each hear his voice. Please work in our hearts. I pray for those that have never heard his voice. May they be born again today. I pray for those that have heard his voice. May we be comforted in these words of Christ. We pray in Jesus' holy name.